You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Hang around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy. Where we left off, Joseph is now second in command of Egypt. That's rubbing on my cheek, and I'm going to not want to edit that out later. Uh, Joseph is second in command of Egypt. He has just translated these dreams. There's going to be seven years of bumper crops, followed by seven years of famine, right? There was the cows and the grain. Yeah, America is with me. Cool. And then the famine hits all of the land, okay? So uh, 40, uh, Genesis 41, 57, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Famine in Egypt means that famine everywhere. The, Egypt is fertile, everywhere else is less. If Egypt is famining, then everybody else is worse off, okay? So that means that Jacob's family is starving up in Canaan. And Jacob sends 10 sons to go buy food in Egypt. So it says, then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Jacob is reclusive at this point. He is broken. He is, uh, he's lost his wife, Rachel. He's now lost Joseph. And he is terrified of losing Benjamin, the son of Rachel, his favored wife, the wife that he loved more. So he sends the other brothers, the expendable ones, right? <clears throat> the suicide squad goes off. Uh, the brothers come before Joseph, who is governing Egypt. And we pick it up in the text here, 42, 6 through 17. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold all the grain to, it, uh, to its people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound like a dream we've maybe heard before? As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them put on a mask or something. I don't know. I don't know how you don't recognize your brother. It's 20 years maybe, but still come on. Uh, but he said, where do you come from? He asked where, where, and they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. The text is really making this clear. It says this so many times. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. We're not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Some translations will say dead. Uh, Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. I'm not sure how he's like, can you imagine for a second sitting here watching this? This, this is, seems like an odd conversation. You're spies. No, we're, we're the sons of one man. Well, that's not a great answer. Followed by you're spies. No matter what they say, you're spies, right? It's kind of, it sounds like a bad comedy. Uh, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you were telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Once again, you are spies. 
and he put them all in custody for three days. Okay, so after three days, Joseph lets the brothers go. He switches his mind. He he flip-flops it. Instead of sending uh, one of them back and keeping nine, he sends nine back, keeps one of them. He lets them take grain back. He loads them up and they, they, they buy the grain and they go. But he will keep one captive until they return to Benjamin to prove that they aren't spies. The brothers lament that they are being punished because of how they wronged their little brother, Joseph, who they didn't recognize, when they ignored his cries from the pit. Now, Joseph hears this and he understands what they're saying. He overhears this. They don't realize that he's overhearing this. They think he's Egyptian and needs an interpreter. But he hears this, he understands what they're saying, but they don't know that he can understand them. And Joseph goes and cries because of this. Something he hears makes him weep. Joseph decides to keep Simeon captive right after that. An odd little part of the text. Pause the story here for a second. Let's break down what we've, what we've got so far. Joseph is acting pretty sneaky here, right? He's leaning into this, they don't recognize me. Now, I think there's a couple of options here. There's a couple of possibilities. It could be, I think it's plausible, that he doesn't trust his brothers, who previously had thrown him into a pit and let him be sold into slavery. Kind of understandable, right? Like, I probably would feel similar. I I probably would feel that way. Now, it could be that he's trying to test them. He says, you know, this is how you'll be tested, but he could be trying to test them, maybe see if they've changed or, I don't know, who knows? He could be trying to test them. I don't know. It's, it's a little vague. It's very specific about what he does, and it's not very specific about his motives in the text for this story that we're covering today. We've got to use our little gray cells a little bit. Last possibility that I came up with is it could be that the text is showing us how easy it could be for that generational sin that we keep seeing you know, cause his generation, you know, his dad's pretty deceptive and he had that uncle that was pretty deceptive. And there's a lot of deception, even back with Abraham involved with Egypt, even, you know, Hey, that's no, that's not my wife. That's my sister. There's a lot of deception within their family. So it could be that the text is kind of giving us this little tension of, Hey, Joseph's leaning into deception again. Something might go wrong. I think that's a possibility. Other thing to note, Joseph remembers the dream after seeing his brothers bow and his reaction makes complete sense. It's to, it's to talk to them harshly and then to call them spies and to come up with this elaborate plot involving Benjamin um, to prove that they aren't. Maybe we should ask ourselves why that might be. We've got a couple of options for your consideration could just be that he's, he's just angry. He's just, you know, really angry at his brothers and he wants to, you know, take out his pound of flesh. Like let's throw him in prison for a bit. Let's like, let's make him sweat. I got the power because he has all the power. Now he's the second, he's the second like most powerful guy in the, in the world at this point, he's got all the food. He's got all the power. They have nothing on him. And he puts him in prison, which is kind of like a pit. If we remember from last week, that word, right? Okay. Could be. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, though, that he's not just being a jerk. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's trying to get Benjamin safe. Maybe he's trying to make sure that Benjamin's safe. He's like, I don't trust these brothers of mine. They, they tried to get rid of me, and Benjamin's favored too, so maybe they tried to get rid of him. Maybe he's just doing this to make sure Benjamin's all right. That's possible. 
It could also be that he's trying to get this dream to come true. That could be. He sees this dream. He's like, wait, not all the brothers are here. They're all supposed to be bowing down. And my dad's not here. He's supposed to be bowing down. And if Joseph sees that, you know, God, God gave him this dream. We talk about God giving us dreams. God gave me this dream. And so I need to make sure that, I, that it comes true. I wouldn't leave that up to God to make sure that it comes true. I, I need to make sure that this comes true, right? Of course, that's logical. None of us would ever do such a thing right? He might be using the wrong tools to get it done, being deceptive and such, but you know, okay. So he remembers this and we got this plot now, but let's remind ourselves of what Joseph doesn't know. Cause it's sometimes it's easy to read this story and we know the ending. And so we, we read with kind of our, our, our God goggles looking down from above, if you will, understanding maybe motives and stuff. And, and we read into that without remembering that Joseph doesn't know if his father is alive. He doesn't actually know. He doesn't trust his brothers. So they might be lying when they say that. He doesn't know. He doesn't know if his father let him be sold into slavery originally. That could have been. Because dad never came and got me. He sent me on this mission, but then I never heard anything. Why would dad who loves me so much not come get me? Why did Joseph never write back to his father? For your consideration. Other things that he doesn't know. He doesn't know if Benjamin's alive, right? They could have killed him too or sold him into slavery. And then lastly, he doesn't know that, that Reuben was spearheading uh, He doesn't know that Reuben wasn't spearheading, sorry, wasn't spearheading him being sold. Because he hears this conversation and and, and the brothers are lamenting and Reuben says, see, I told you guys we shouldn't, but nobody listened to me. And Joseph hears that and he weeps. He doesn't know that until he overhears this. And then he changes his mind possibly and picks Simeon, but that's for a different day. That's footnotey goodness if we had it. So there's a lot of things that Joseph doesn't know at this point. And I think it's important that we remember this, but let's get back into the story. So Joseph loads them up with grain, but he also sneaks the money that they use, the silver back into their sacks and he puts that back in there. So they're not, they're getting grain for free. Kind of an odd thing to do. Okay. The brothers leave later after they stop, they realize that some of the silver's there. They open up one of the bags and they see it and they're like, oh no. And they blame God. They're, they're, they're sure that God's making them to look like thieves is what it seems like. They're lamenting this. They're like, oh, this is, this is a problem. They don't go back though. They continue going home probably because they're scared. They arrive home and they tell Jacob what happened, what happened with this governor of Egypt, this, this Lord in Egypt. And they open up their bags and they find all the rest of the silver And it seems even worse. And then Jacob laments in 42, 36, he says, uh, the father Jacob said, Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you want me to, now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Oh, woe is me. Good old Jacob, right? Very woe is me. Never mind that Simeon's like in jail right now. Woe is me. He's got it bad. Reuben then offers his own kids as collateral. 
as a replacement, as a scapegoat, as a sacrifice, uh, if Jacob allows him to take Benjamin to go retrieve Simeon, good old Reuben, he's trying his best to be the behor. He's really trying to be that firstborn. Jacob says no though, 4238. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. I thought Jacob had a lot of sons. How is Benjamin the only one? Okay, never mind. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to, my, down to the grave in sorrow. Side note, this is very similar to the verbiage that he uses when Joseph is killed. Killed. When he finds out Joseph is quote unquote dead, this is similar to what he says there. Now, the famine continues to be real bad. Jacob's family uses up all their food from Egypt. So that takes a while. And then Jacob tells his sons to go back and buy more food. Apparently he's forgotten that there was this whole thing about Simeon being there and none of them are going to come back if they go without Benjamin. He's forgotten this at this point. It's been long enough, but he's got Benjamin. So he's happy. And Judah then steps up and confronts his father and tells him that they can't go back without Benjamin. He reminds him of this and he takes complete responsibility for his safety. Judah steps up and says, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be the one. Not, I'm not going to put up my kids as, as an offering, as collateral. I'm going to be the collateral. That's what Judah says. <clears throat> and he also throws in that they could have been there twice, there and back again twice in the time that it's taken Jacob to come to this point. A little bit of a side shot there from Judah, it feels like. And then Israel agrees to let Benjamin go. Oh, that might be worth noting. He sends them with gifts and extra silver in case the return stuff was a mistake. He really wants to make sure that this goes well, because now, now he's got some skin in the game, if you will, with Benjamin. And he blesses their mission half-heartedly. Because he says, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. He's still a little bit of like, this is still kind of like, oh, woe is me a little bit. There's a little bit of vibe to that. Like he's, he's for sure an emo kid in high school is what Jacob's got going on. Let's pause that story real quick here again. Reuben tries to be the behor over and over and over again. And we should probably feel a little sorry for him because he tries so hard and it just never works for the guy. It's so sad. Then we see this Jacob Israel flip-flop. You remember we talked about this before where Jacob's name, his name flip-flops depending on how he's behaving. It was a little hard to see. It's pretty clear here. We get this real distinct Jacob when he's deciding to be clingy to Benjamin and not do the right thing and not save his other son. And when he decides to do the right thing, he now becomes Israel again. It happens all over the place. This is another great example. Jacob refers to Benjamin by name, but Simeon gets called your other brother. Did you guys catch that? Your other brother and Benjamin, that other guy, that other one. It's a second born, that other guy. Cool, cool. That's not favoritism at all showing through. It is. It's a lot of favoritism which should be queuing us up. Once again, there's tension here because we know the previous stories of what's been happening. There's me winding at the, all the connected dots again. There we go. There's all this tension occurring that should be queuing us in. We're like, oh no, 
Oh no, what happens when Jacob shows favoritism? Bad things happen. Disaster strikes. Judah confronts his father somewhat here. I think that's a positive aspect. And Judah offers, Judah offers up collateral. Does that remind you of any story? Did we just learn about a story where Judah offers something, maybe a coat, up for collateral because he doesn't have a goat? Maybe the story with Tamar, which was a redemptive story for Judah. All right. We got some good things going here, maybe. There's a lot of, lot of interplay going on in this story. Back to the story. The brothers go back down to Egypt with Benjamin this time. Joseph welcomes them with open arms, super stoked. The brothers try to return the silver. They take all this extra silver and they're, you know, extra. And they're like, here, no, it showed up in our bags. We don't know what happened. It wasn't us. And, and they get told, no, 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 God put that in your bags. Cause we, we got, we got paid. You're, you're good. The books are good, which is deceptive, but in a nice way. I don't know. He's screwing with them. Something fierce. Uh, and then Simeon gets returned. Everybody's happy. Simeon's back. Cool, cool, cool. The brothers bow down again. There's a lot of bowing down here. This dream just keeps happening. The, bow, the brothers all bow down before Joseph. Joseph almost breaks his poker face when Benjamin shows up. When he sees Benjamin, he almost loses it. He has to go like run out of the room and find someplace to weep. But he comes back and they all have this big meal together. And the, the brothers get seated from oldest to youngest somehow, magically. Somebody there knew how to seat them. I don't know how they don't catch this, honestly. Uh, and then Ben, Benjamin gets the biggest portions. He gets like five times the, the amount of food at this meal. I don't know how they're not seeing it at this point, but they're not. But they're amazed by it. They're like, how did he, how did they know that we're oldest to youngest? Well, this is wild. There might also be some first is last, last is first sort of thing there going on. Um, Joseph gives instructions for their sacks to be filled with food, but to put his silver cup, his divination cup in his younger brother, Benjamin's sack. Once again, he's being deceptive. He's being sneaky. What is going on here? The brothers all head out of town the next day. We pick it up in the text in chapter 44. It says they had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid evil or repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We have brought back, uh, we even brought back from the land of Canaan, the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of our, any, any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. That's pretty drastic. Very well. Then he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave and the rest of you will be free to blame. Once again, backing this down, like an immediate back down, but let it be as you say, I, that's curious. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward proceeded to search beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, not just because they want to build tension, not just good storytelling. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded up their donkeys and returned to the city. They pull a Yui. They're distraught. Pause. Does this episode remind you of something? It should. 
Think way back in Genesis. Did we have a story where there was somebody chasing somebody because something went missing? And then there was a search that went from the oldest to the youngest. And there was a loud proclamation of a, there was a drastic statement like whoever has this will die. Does that maybe ring any bells? Maybe, maybe Laban, Levon looking for his idols when Rachel stole them. Does this sound like a repeat? This story has so many interconnected points. It's so on the nose. Like I I think I lost a little bit of, of my nose this week just because it was grinding on it so hard. I promise you these two are so they are one story. They go on and on and on. But it's also a little bit odd in this because that means in, in that story, Laban's kind of the bad guy, if you will. And in this story, Joseph is in the position of Laban. I, I, I suggest that maybe the text is showing us that the world is not purely black and white. It's not purely good and bad. Things are a little messier, maybe a little roughly right, if you will. It's also maybe showing us that Joseph is toying with his dark side, perhaps. There's divination. Has he gone, has he gone native? It's been a long time. He really likes living under Pharaoh. He's kind of enjoying this power. Has he gone a little native? Possibly. There's also some similarities between this and Joseph being sold. Because put yourself in the position of the brothers. The brothers don't know that Benjamin didn't take the cup. They're... Like they don't know that Benjamin didn't do this. They don't know it's a frame job. They probably should be mad at Benjamin. Like they're putting their neck out on the line and then he's stolen this cup. What the heck? The little brother getting into all sorts of trouble here. And on top of that, Benjamin just got like super favored at this previous meal Like, not only is he favored by dad, and we acknowledged that earlier, he's favored more by dad, but he's also apparently favored more by this Egyptian guy. Benjamin always gets everything, and then he runs off and steals a cup? What the heck? If you're the brothers, you should be angry. But that's not what they, that's not what they do. Because frankly, when you're looking at the story here, this seems like a golden opportunity to get rid of another favorite child into slavery. Just like what happened with Joseph. Joseph shows up. He's favored. Dad loves him the most. We're angry about it. And Midianite traders. Cool. They can take him into slavery. They show up here. Benjamin does something stupid. And they can be like, we didn't do it, dad. Sorry. Benjamin was it. We tried. We tried. Perfect opportunity. They could just sit back and watch it happen again, but they don't. They don't. The story takes a little bit of a different turn here. And we should be expecting this replay after so many times where this story has gone through. We've seen this, this story play out so many times over the course of this. In that early story, Joseph gets this shiny coat. They're confronted by the, the, the favoritism. And so they deceive and they get rid of Joseph. But what do we see them do now? Keep that in mind. What do we see them do now that's different from that? So we resume the story. The brothers come back before Joseph. They make this U-turn. They come back into the city, even though they could have left, even though they had said like, you know, we're going to be slaves too. 
Benjamin's going to die and we're going to be slaves, they should run. But they come back and they come, they come before Joseph. They throw themselves on the ground. Judah offers them all up as slaves along with Benjamin, not just as a bargain. He's like, we'll just be slaves with Benjamin. This is some solidarity here coming from Judah. Joseph says, no, just the guilty one. Y'all can go in peace. And then Judah rises up. Hot dang. Favorite part of this story. Judah rises up. Do you all remember? Back with Judah and Tamar. There's this phrase at the beginning of that. Judah went down from his brothers. In the text, it says Judah went down from his brothers. This is the, there's this descent of Judah and he goes away from his family. And in this, we see the opposite. It says, then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. He's talking to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph, but he's talking to Joseph. <clears throat> Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. Joseph has all of the power here. He's still leaning into this deception. And then what happens? Judah gives a really impressive persuasive argument with multiple bullet points to convince Joseph, right? That's what happens. That's not what happens. Joseph, Judah, Judah just retells this story, most of which Joseph was there for. He just kind of retells it to him in a super docile, like not flashy, not showy. This guy would not make a good prophet sort of way. He just... He just says what's happened. He just restates what happened. It's not glamorous, but there's a couple of key elements in here. <clears throat> key element number one in Judah retelling this story to Joseph. He says, my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? Joseph asked them, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. Born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Now, pause. Joseph is the only other person in all of Torah that this phrase gets used for. This child of old age. Joseph is the only other time that's mentioned. And we've seen that back in Genesis 37. When Joseph is having those dreams and this whole thing kind of kicks off, Joseph is described. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. We just saw this and Judah is calling back. He's calling up this problem that ripped their whole family apart. He doesn't know that Joseph is the one that he's talking to. He's just calling this up and stating it that this is what it is. Like dad favors Benjamin. Dad loves him more than the rest of us. He's calling up this problem that ripped the family asunder. But this time, instead of being followed by hatred, Judah sees the favoritism. He calls a spade a spade and he kind of just accepts it. Doesn't mean that he has to like it. Doesn't mean that he agrees with it, but he accepts it. He says, this is what it is. The elephant has been called out in the room. It's been acknowledged. 
Where do we see that? We see that down in verse 30 as he continues through this story. And then he gets to this part. It says, so now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, his soul is tied to the boy's life. Sees that the boy isn't there. He will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow using Jacob's words that he also used for Joseph. This thread just running through the whole thing. Judah is really just naming the reality that Benjamin is more loved. He's just stating it. Now this doesn't mean that Jacob's favoritism is correct. I want to be clear on that. What, he, what Jacob's doing there is creating all sorts of problems. But it does show that a different method is being used here in this story. We got a different method occurring. We got a different way of reacting. We got a different approach to dealing with this. Because instead of hating him for it, instead of deception, right? Deceiving your father into thinking he's dead so you can change the circumstance, which is what we've seen the brothers do time and again. Instead of avoiding the problem, just not talking to him, they couldn't speak to him, right? That's what it said back in 37. They hated him and they couldn't speak peace to him is how that finishes. Instead of deception, instead of avoidance, this is calling a spade a spade, but doing it with humility and without anger is what we see in Judah here. This should, re- this should probably remind us of the last time that Judah offered himself up for, or offered something up for collateral. Do you remember this with Judah and Tamar? He offers himself, he offers this, this coat up for collateral and then he's confronted by it and he has to make this proclamation. You are more righteous than I, which is so fantastic. He comes to this realization. He has to admit this with humility. That takes a lot of humility to admit that. It's this recognition of his actions He learns this lesson and recognizes that his actions and mistakes are important in this. There are actions and mistakes in this that are important, but it doesn't do us any good to put on blinders and it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to be deceptive and try to change things. Just call the spade a spade is what we see you to do. Now that's not the end of it because the next step after you've called the spade a spade is to try to mend the relationship that you've broken or the mend of the relationship that is broken. And we see that happen in element three here. Pick it up in verse 32. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life for eternity. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Take me instead. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. I realize that Benjamin is dad's favorite and I can't handle seeing dad broken over losing his favorite. I don't love the fact that Benjamin is his favorite, but that's just the way it is. And I'm going to try to do the most redemptive thing I possibly can with this kind of bad situation is what we see you to do. Judah is acting like a brother that he should have been back at the beginning of the story. When the brothers hated Joseph, when they see Joseph coming and they're like, no, let's, let's kill him. Judah 
instead of jumping on the bad bandwagon with this, Judah should have stepped up and been like, no, that's not right. He says he would rather be a slave himself than to let Benjamin become a slave. This, this, this kid, the youngest, literally the youngest, the least of us, the dad loves the most. No, no, no. Take me instead. Take me instead. Side note, fun fact, Judah saving Benjamin occurs multiple times in the Old Testament. Back and forth. Think about David and Jonathan from the tribes that they're from. Jonathan stepping, Benjamin stepping in to save David. The tribe of Benjamin stepping in to save the tribe of Judah. You can trace these throughout. This is a huge, huge kind of culmination point within the Old Testament. More than this though, more than Judah just being the brother that he's supposed to be, we see Judah acknowledging that the pain that was caused by them deceiving the pain that they caused their father. He's acknowledging this. And Jacob, you know, Jacob by selling Joseph, uh, they caused it Jacob by selling Joseph. Um, by acknowledging this, in essence, he's reconciling with his father also. His father's not there. But this, you can look at this, you can be like, this is kind of him reconciling with his father too. This is saying, no, I can't, that end bit. Like, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. I'm not angry at my dad for the favoritism. I'm letting this go. Oh, baby. This is so good. And that ends the chapter. And we don't know how it resolves. Shh, we don't know how it resolves. Forget the rest of the story. It just ends right there. Until Rob comes back next week and gets all the fun stuff. <laughs> End scene. Judah has just laid this out there. We don't know how it resolves. But Judah has done this redemptive. You remember when I talked last week about making a redemptive choice? Judah just made one heck of a redemptive choice right here. So I'm going to leave it with one implication today. Because there's, let's be honest, this was a ton of text and there's a lot in this story. And we could probably pull implications for days. You could sit there and wrestle over the text for a long time. Maybe at care group. That'd be a great time to do it. But I'm going to leave one implication that I think is really important. The implication is this, approach both your own and others' pasts with open and honest recognition and evaluation. Jen will throw that up there in a minute. Approach both your own and others' pasts with open and honest recognition and evaluation. You know, the series is called Family Feud. We've looked at the interplay and we've talked about the genogram and all of this stuff about this family and the, the, the history that keeps coming back. It keeps repeating itself. The stories, the narratives just keep happening over and over and over again. We've talked about this and we've tried to apply this to our own lives of, you know, what, how can we look at our own families? How can we look at our own past mistakes and the things that we've done? How can we pull those apart and say like, maybe we need to get out of the cycle perhaps? I think it starts with this and we see Judah, we see Judah model this perfectly approaching his own past and the past of his father and brothers with an open and honest recognition and evaluation. That's his step number one. 
before he can mend the relationships, before any of that good stuff that might or might not be coming in the rest of the story, spoiler alert, before any of that stuff happens, this first, this groundwork of acknowledging where he's been, what he's done and what's happened honestly. And with a, with a good eye, not with, not with like this, this blind sort of twisted in my own justification of myself. He just says, this is what it is. This, this, this implication, it applies both to the times where you're a Judah and you're, you're the person that's in the wrong. Although Judah's also been wronged. So there's a little bit of both for everybody involved in this one. But Judah's, this happens, this, this applies when you're the person being wrong, doing the wronging. And this also applies when you're kind of in the position of Joseph being sold and you're being wronged. So whether you're doling it out or you're receiving it, this, uh, this implication, this works, this step works. This is the first step. So when I go back and I look at the events of my life that have shaped me open and honestly, what happens when I do that? You guys know what happens when you actually allow God to get into them. When you, when you look at those open and honest, you say, okay, this is where I've been. When you're not hiding that anymore, when you're not trying to protect that anymore, you're just looking at it and you're evaluating things and you're saying, this is my family. This is, this is where things have been. That allows God to get into those nooks and crannies and it allows him to bring about redemption. Judah is opening himself up. He's opening the situation and saying, here it is. And what that does is it allows God to get in there and start to bring about redemption, which might or might not happen depending on, you know, how Rob preaches it next week. I'm pretty sure it'll happen. I've read the story. I know where this is going. But it starts with Judah making this choice. Oh, so good. So could we be a little bit more like Judah in this? Because Judah's a rock star. Judah's an absolute rock star in this. Could we be a little bit more like him and approach our own past and others' pasts with that open and honest recognition and evaluation. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come say hello. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church/give. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in.